Welcome to Bramasol's Insights to Action podcast library of topics covering regulatory compliance, reporting, disclosures, financial management, and financial transformation technologies. Bramasol is the leader in SAP-based finance solutions and a co-innovator with SAP on developing and deploying purpose-built compliance capabilities. Learn more about Bramasol at www.bramasol.com. This is Jim Hunt for Bramasol's Insights to Action podcast series. Today, we're really lucky to have Birgit Starmans, who is the Global Head for Thought Leadership, Strategy, and Programs in the Global Center of Excellence for Finance and Risk. She has functional experience in finance and management accounting, including SAP S4 HANA Finance, as well as Core, SAP ERP, and uh, EPM uh, systems. She has over 30 years of experience across Center of Excellence and focus on solution marketing, solution management, strategic customer communities, and management consulting organizations. So she is perfectly positioned to talk about our topic today, which is change management. Birgit, welcome. Good to have you here. Thank you so much, Jim. It's great to be here. So let's dive right into it. Um, what does change management entail from your perspective? Well, change management is really the people side of the equation of, of change. When we all look at change management, initially we're looking at system implementations. What is the system task supposed to look like? Um, how does data flow through the systems? And then what ends up happening is that sometimes we forget about the people side of the equation. And then everyone gets nervous because they're very resistant to change for very many different reasons. Um, some of it is fear of losing their jobs because all of a sudden we're inserting more automa automation. And sometimes it's just a lack of understanding. So change management programs really need to involve frequent communications, focusing on the why. And then also we have to have training programs. I have a great story of one of my consulting engagements and this totally dates me because it puts us back into the 90s. But we, we thought we were going to be training people on how to do plant management and we were focused just on the SAP systems. And the first question somebody asked is how to use a mouse and how to get into the system. We were teaching people how to double click on a particular icon before we could even get into, well, here's your great new plant management system. So that was very eye-opening and a whole, a whole story of what change management entailed. These are people that were working on the factory floor and they weren't working on a Windows computer every single day. So that was very eye-opening to us on what it all has to encompass when we talk about a training program. That's, that's a great point. So essentially change agents, they often focus on the processes and the new software and how it's going to be so perfect and, and change everything. But if they don't think about the people aspect and the communication aspect and what the people don't know, then it's not going to be successful no matter how good the processes and software are. Exactly. You have to know your audience. And I would say the other piece is um, <clears throat> we have to have specific tasks and a, and a realistic timeline. So change management is not this thing that you should get back to, oh, maybe in a year after you finish the implementation. Meanwhile, everybody's confused because they know that an implementation is going on. So we need to set milestones that we can actually measure. Otherwise, we don't know whether an implementation or the change management process is actually taking hold. So measuring change management becomes important as well. So it's not, it's not just setting the milestones and the timeline, it's having a feedback process, the iterative process to see where you are and, and be able to make adjustments as you go? 
Exactly, because you get what you measure. So if there's a criteria that you're implementing, but you never go back and measure it, first of all, you don't know if it was successful and you need to take maybe mitigating actions if it wasn't. But if you never measure it and never come back with, here's how successful it was, or here's what we can change to make it better. If you don't actually measure it, then you're never actually going to see any change. And that's true from a systems perspective, as well as from a change management perspective. Well, what sort of buy-in do you need and at what level amongst the stakeholders in the company to ensure that you're addressing all of those employee issues of fear of losing their jobs or those kinds of issues? How do you bring the stakeholders in and make sure that they are on board? You really have to have a multi-level approach for the stakeholders, but it has to start with executive buy-in because if there's no executive buy-in, we probably don't have an implementation systems-wide um, of that you need to even communicate with regarding the change. But then having communications that shows that there's executive buy-in is really critical. Otherwise, some departments may feel, well, we're doing this, but somebody else isn't, and why is that? So it starts at the top level with regular communications, and the why is extremely important. And then also the language is important. So it has to flow from the executive level to the VP level to the managerial level, and that way you get more buy-in from the employee base. And the language is very interesting, and that's very company-specific. So you can't come in with generalities. For example, right now, okay, uh, well, we have to change because of COVID. Well, what does that mean? What kind of change are you talking about? I mean, we know we're working remotely, but what does that mean from a day-to-day -day and more concrete standpoint? And then companies have very specific languages. One of my consulting projects, also still in the 90s, best practices was a great term. But unfortunately, prior to our implementation project, there was another company that had defined best practices and it meant that they laid off a lot of employees. So best practices of that meant, meant job cutting. So during that project, we couldn't use that term because there was just such a fear in the entire company that, okay, here's another best practice project how many of us are gonna lose our jobs. So we had to start using different terminology on that implementation. And it, the good thing is that here we are about 20 years later and best practices now has the connotation that it was meant to have. This is really an industry standard and this is why it's a good thing. But that's, being very careful about the language became very important. That's really interesting. I, I use best practices a lot. I never thought about it having a negative connotation. Luckily, it's not that way so much anymore, but I think right. at the time it was because we were going from, I mean, we talk about going from manual process to being more automated now, but a lot of times our manual processes are still, somebody types in a journal entry, but they do it into a system now. But at the time, I think it was even more so that systems were being implemented for the very first time. And so there is more concern. And I think now we're more technologically advanced, especially with the millennials in the workforce, they're used to new apps coming out very quickly. But that means that there has to be change management on the provider's side to make things look more like what we would see in a consumer-oriented space. Um, so that means a, an easier UI, something that's easy to learn, something that I don't have to go to a class for for a month um, in order to learn it. Right, and that brings up the issue of needing to understand your audience as well. If the workforce is uh, multi-generational, you may have some people who need to, as you said, learn how to use a mouse, but you have other people, millennials, who don't want, uh, they want you to just cut to the chase and 
give them the UI and they'll figure it out and go for it. I mean, that basically means that any, any kind of training has to have multiple tracks, maybe based on role or based on where they are. Um, and if you look at the finance audience specifically, I mean, we keep saying that we need to free up finance to, to add more value to the organization. And that's very true. If I don't have to go check you know, every single manual journal entry and we can implement some automation, that means they do have a freed up time, but that also means a different skill set. So that means that they need to get trained on these new tools that allow them to provide more value and to be more analytical. Right. And that freed up time is probably another one of those loaded words in some organizations because uh, people will interpret it as layoffs or job reduction or something. Very good point. Yes, right. that's a very good point. And, and you probably need to focus on, I mean, legitimately, you don't want to, you know, to be untruthful, but if the intent is to free up time and create more value in the jobs themselves and focus on, say, higher level analytical tasks or whatever, people need to understand that so they know it's job enrichment, not job elimination. I like that term job enrichment that you just used. That's, that's a really good point. And then the, also that the training and the communication has to happen while the change is taking place, not, okay, we freed up all your time, which exacerbates the concern about losing a job, but actually start that process while the change is happening on a regular basis, not just wait till the end of an implementation, for example, and say, okay, now we're going to train you. But that training should actually start earlier. And if that training involves a new skill set, that should happen really much at the beginning and not wait until the end of that process and say, okay, now we're going to throw you into the deep end, or now you have to take all this training and squeeze it all in um, into a very limited time frame, but really make sure that it's ongoing as the process takes place. Right. And, and from the beginning, uh, that retraining, it reinforces that they have a valuable role in the new changed systems. That's a really good point. Yes, they have a role and they can influence what that change is going to look like. Yeah, instead of saying, well, okay, we're going to change your entire uh, accounts receivable process. Um, maybe we want some input. Maybe there are certain customer groups where you can change that, but you can't change it overall. Um, but that brings up an interesting point of shared services because that's usually put in place to uh, make sure that processes are standardized so that every location doesn't have different rules. Um, when it comes to receivables or maybe even processing an employee expense report, we want to make sure that there's some consistency that's that's brought into play. Um, then also checking with the teams, what are you doing now? What wish that you had? Um, but that also brings up an interesting point of, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Um, many times when you start a project, you'll get, well, yeah, we need this report. Well, why do you need it? Well, we've always done it this way. Well, no, that's not the right answer. The right answer really should be, well, what decisions are you making based on this report? And if you're not using it for anything, just because we've always done it cannot be the right answer. What information do you need to make the right decisions? And that way you can segue into maybe newer and more valuable reports that can be used by a finance and risk organization. Very good point. Let, let's talk for a couple of minutes about automation itself. You mentioned shared services and so often these uh, change management program in these days is focused on uh, productivity improvements. Automation's a big part of that. So maybe if you could elaborate a little bit on uh, the automation aspects. Sure. Um, because a lot of change management these days is first it was how to how do I become um, 
less error prone and more automated. So here we're seeing um, solutions like the SAPS for HANA Finance um, that really helps with that, also central finance. So it helps with the automation and we're also introducing things like machine learning. And the interesting piece of machine learning is it looks at both automated processes and then it looks at how a real person, a real human reacted to an exception and it learns from that. So normally with machine learning, um, it continues to learn. So initially you train it based on prior transactions that have flown through certain processes like a cash application process or a goods receipt, invoice receipt, GRIR reconciliation. And it looks to see what the rules are in the system. The interesting thing is after an implementation, it's very rare that a company will go back and change the rules. So that way, as time goes by, you get more and more exceptions so you really haven't taken away the manual processes. So with machine learning, it actually learns on how those exceptions were reacted on and it changes the algorithm. And you know, companies could decide, do we want to post that automatically or do we still want a review step? But a review step will still take less time than having somebody go through and manually process every transaction. So with automation, you're actually reducing errors that allows finance team to focus on the exceptions. So if there is a problem with collections, they can spend more time on a phone call and be nice about it versus do that, you know, I'm reading a script and you know, you're delinquent, you know, which is always a bad word in customer relationships. Um, it just doesn't start the conversation off in the right way, but if they had more time and they were trained in you know, how to speak to customers in, in a more um, collaborative way. So that's actually a way to, you know, for, for people finance teams that don't want to be more analytical, but they can still add more value to the jobs and become more productive in a more collaborative way. And then there are those people, a colleague once said, well, yeah, I had, I, ha I was going to be a business analyst. And then I found that I was an accountant. So uh -huh. she wanted to do that more analytical piece, but then she found that she was doing all those ma manual things. So, you know, that whole um, idea of a financial analyst on the team, being able to be more analytical, look at what if um, situations, look at simulations. And there, my favorite is actually the, um, the whole scenario of uh, mergers and acquisitions. That way you can look at the financial impact of some of these strategic decisions. Well, if I buy a company or merge with one, what is the financial impact going to look like? What does it look like if I merge with company A or company B or company C? Or instead of acquiring a company, what is the cost and what's the value add for producing it in-house? So there you've got some of the soft skills um, associated with that and some of the soft returns as well as some of the hard financial aspects, which requires some pretty advanced analytical thinking um, in order to do that. So there, actually machine learning will also help to um, facilitate some of those predictive models and some of those simulations. So everything is not going back to you know, what we maybe did in our MBA program with statistical software, but really embed that into normal analytics and look at the real-time information that's already available. That's an interesting notion. I, I've always thought with machine learning uh, that it's, I've heard people refer to it as kind of a, an assistant uh, that does the grunt work and allows people to focus on higher level, whether it's customer facing or analytics, whatever their, their um, role might be and their preferences might be. But I really hadn't thought about machine learning as as it learns the exceptions, it becomes smarter. It could be a modeling tool for things like M&A acquisitions and so on. Exactly, 
Exactly. And then as, as it, can, it can come up with recommendations, but this is not a scenario where you just wanted to go ahead and paste that, that adjustment to the open item where we didn't get a receivable. Okay, got it, check. But you know, here is not something where you would want to make the decision for you, but it can help you in terms of modeling. It can maybe identify trends that you were not able to see before that you want to include in your modeling. So there are many very interesting things that I think we're only starting to explore, but we already have in terms of our S4HANA finance solution, we already have some scenarios where we're leveraging that machine learning and we're only looking to expand that happening. We should definitely do a future podcast on machine learning uh, specifically. Um, definitely. It deserves it. it, deserves it. Um, we only have a few more minutes uh, in our time today, but I really would like you to elaborate some on the implications of the current new normal, or I guess we're trying to get to new normal, but the, the shift toward remote working and, and so on, how that plays into the change management process itself. Yeah, I feel like we've actually had to accelerate the change management process because normally you have a lot of time in any given project, be it a systems project or any other type of project, and you have a lot of time to plan it out and all of a sudden, boom, we're all staying at home. So we're basically forced to do that more quickly with the remote learning. And Jim, you and I discussed that we've both been working from home for years, but there are many people who have not. So they have t technology um, challenges. Yeah, I'm not just using FaceTime right now. I'm actually using you know, things like Zoom, Microsoft Teams, um, you know, Skype, using other kinds of more business-oriented communication tools um, that are basically run on a company platform. So there are changes that, are, that have come into play in using those tools, but then also more the softer side of it. How do I manage my time now that I'm working from home and there's not the delineation of I'm going to the office and now I'm returning home and now I'm basically doing things on the side, like whether it's taking care of kids or doing errands within the house or you know, anything like that. Um, how to manage your time more effectively, how to be able to actually step away from the computer when it's the end of the workday. Yeah, I've met my timeline, I'm gonna, getting started on something else and it's really easy to fall into the hole of, okay, I'm gonna work until 10 o'clock every night. And yeah, that's maybe not necessarily needed. So yeah, there are a lot of programs I've seen companies start to put in place, yeah, whether it's webinars to talk about you know, how employees can deal with that, whether it's regular emails, um, at SAP, we're getting very regular emails, both from our local offices, um, our office heads, as well as the regional heads, as well as from all the way to the executive level. So it's a really good example of the executive level emails, the regional emails, the management emails from our um, physical locations, and then also from our, man from our management and our team management. So and I've got a team that's actually global. My manager is actually on the East Coast. I'm on the West Coast. But we have a global team that, you know, with people in the UK, in Germany, um, you know, in the Nordic region, in, in Latin America, in New Zealand, in Singapore. So we're all over the place. So I think we've got this down, but there are other people that have very focused teams that have always been local. So they really haven't had to deal with things like time zone changes. They see each other every day, so it's easy to just walk around the corner to a cubicle and ask a question. So now that we're all working from home, how do we do that? Do we call? Do we write an email? Do we use one of these collaboration tools? So there are a lot of different uh, decisions that 
you know, sometimes are being made for us um, because we have to work from home. And sometimes it's a personal preference of how are you going to reach out to those colleagues? But if you're going to do it on email, they need to expect it on email and check their email regularly. Some might prefer a phone call because it simulates the working environments a little bit more closely. So there are a lot of different questions that we have to answer on a company level as well as on a personal level. Right, and there's a lot of uh, pressure we can put on ourselves, especially if we're not used to working at home and working across multiple time zones. Um, you have this pressure of immediacy. If you get a question from somebody who's um, maybe total opposite time zone from you, you feel compelled to answer as fast, fast as possible which yep. can be debilitating. Yeah, and, and, but sometimes that person needs the answer in order to get their job done, right? So it's, right. it's a balancing act. I think as with everything, um, change management is a balancing act you know, between technology and personal, between executive and team management. Um, it's a balancing act. Very good overview. Um, is there anything that we didn't cover? I think, I, I know I've learned a lot from this session. I don't have much more of your time, but is, is there anything that you want to add as kind of a wrap up? Well, yeah, as a wrap up, I think that we need to think about change management um, earlier than we typically do. Normally in any kind of a project, we see change management, we start to think about it maybe halfway through the project, uh, which is actually a big improvement from what we used to do years ago. But yeah, to think about it really as we plan our project from the get-go. And I think that's the most important thing and be very aware of it. And yeah, again, communication, communication, and not just the what, but also the why. Perfect wrap up. Brigitte, thank you very much for your time today. This has been very useful. I know our listeners will uh, learn a lot from it as I did. Thank you again. Thanks so much for having me, Jim. Thank you for listening to this episode of Bramasol's Insight to Action podcast series. We hope that you found it helpful. To ensure that you never miss a future episode, you can subscribe to Bramasol at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Bramasol and detail on our solutions for compliance, optimization, and financial transformation, please visit www.bramasol.com or email us at info at bramasol.com.